All right, we'll continue our series Mind Games in just a bit, but let me mention a few things that are coming up. One is this evening at 5 o'clock, we have our anniversary dinner. We call it our celebration dinner. Uh, If you have already purchased tickets for that, then I assume you remember that, uh, 5 o'clock. And if you did not purchase tickets or if you purchased them after Wednesday night, then you were not included in the number that we gave to the caterer which means, as we said in the program, that we can't guarantee food for you if you show up tonight. Uh, you can have my food. I can go without. I'll be happy to give at least one of you. Actually, I usually eat enough for two of you, so two of you can take my food. But that, in all seriousness, we have, uh, I'm told, it's a, which is a great problem to have, we have a ton of people coming to this tonight, uh, and uh, the caterer has a certain number. They may well have enough for everybody, but if you didn't buy a ticket, buy the deadline of Wednesday night, then please come and then hang back. And uh, then if there's enough, then of course you're welcome to participate in that. Uh, but that's tonight. And if you are coming, we've been encouraging you to think about a testimony that you can share of God's grace in your life. That's a big part. In fact, it's the only part of our program for the anniversary dinner. It's the only time during the year that we set aside time to hear testimonies from the congregation. So this is your opportunity to give glory to God for what he's done in your life uh, and encourage the congregation by having them hear that. So I would encourage as many of you as possible in the hour or so that we will have to just have microphones going throughout the uh, group. You don't have to come up here. You you stand at your seat. You'll be given a microphone and then uh, give your testimony, okay? So that'll uh, be tonight at uh, 5 o'clock. And then three weeks from today, we start a new series during, two new series during this hour. Uh, The one that we'll meet in here will be on marriage, Marriage Matters. And we have flyers for that at the uh, Information Center. I encourage you to take a a pile of those and pass them out to your friends. Uh, I'm supposed to receive an email version of that, a PDF of that this week that I will mail to email to the congregation that you can then just forward to folks to invite them to that. But that's a 10-week series. It starts three weeks from today in this hour on October 18th. Now, for those of you that will not be in the marriage class, for whatever reason, if you don't, you're not interested in that, then we offer a second class called How We Got Our Bible during that same time. Dr. Combs will be teaching that, and that'll be in another room. The very first week, it's going to be in the impact zone, which is on the south end of the building. And then we'll have a better idea of what the numbers are in that class. If the numbers can fit into one of our adult classrooms, then in subsequent weeks we'll have it meet in there because that's closer and more convenient. But we just don't know how many are going to be in which class. Uh, so we'll know after that first week how to divide that up for location. So that's coming up in three weeks. Please think about somebody to invite for that. And then my last uh, announcement is on November the 8th is our next baptism. And if you have never been baptized, then you need to be because Jesus says so. Jesus commands all of his followers to be baptized. And being baptized means in the Bible that you are dunked in water to signify the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And I do that with my hand to show that, that it's death, burial, and resurrection. So you go in the water and you come out of the water uh, to symbolize uh, that. And so if you've been baptized as an infant, uh, then you were not baptized the way the Bible talks about. Uh, there are no infants that were baptized in the Bible. None, zero, uh, nada. And so to be baptized means to be immersed and be immersed after you have made an intentional, personal, individual decision to become a follower of Christ. So you have to be of at least 
an age where you understand the gospel and have responded to the gospel, obviously an infant is not able to do that either. So if you've never been baptized by being immersed, then Jesus commands you to do that, and we'd love to help you with that. We have an application, a one-page application for baptism that will start that ball rolling for you. You can get that at the information center, fill that out, turn that into them, they'll get it to me, and then we'll go from there. All right, for the last, this is the 12th week that we've been going through the Mind Game series. We have one week after this left. We have today and next Sunday, and then that's it. The Sunday after that, two weeks from today, we have a guest speaker uh, that we've had listed in the program the last few weeks. It's in the program today as well. Les Olala will be with us for both hours, two weeks from today. And some of you know who he is, but he's the past president of Northland International University. He runs an organization now called Building Great Leaders. And he's just a very inspirational fellow, a very godly man. And you will benefit, I am certain, greatly from his ministry to us in both hours. Uh, And then the two days prior to that, on Friday, the 9th, there's going to be a pastor's gathering here. He's going to speak to a group of pastors Friday morning the 9th, and the next morning, Saturday the 10th, men, there's a breakfast here for all of our men, and Les will be speaking to the men at that uh, breakfast as well on, on the 10th. All of that's listed in the, in the program, but that's two weeks from today, so I've got today and next week to finish up the Mind Game series. For the last few weeks in the Mind Game series, we've been looking at using our minds to discern what is best, and in particular, using our minds to discern what is best in making decisions that are in keeping with the will of God. But in order to address that issue of how do I make decisions that are consistent with the will of God, I have to have an understanding of what the will of God, what the will of God is. So we have talked about the fact that the will of God is sometimes used to describe two aspects of God's God's will, but they're They need to be distinguished, otherwise great confusion reigns. And one aspect of God's will is what we call his sovereign will, that is, everything that comes to pass. For God's sovereign will, if you want to know what his will is today, then ask me tomorrow, and that'll be whatever happened. That's God's sovereign will. But then there is God's moral will, what God wants, what God desires. And the difference between the two comes down to the issue of revelation. God has not made known his sovereign will other than through predictive prophecy. The book of Revelation gives us an idea of what's going to happen in the future. And God is sovereignly moving history to that appointed end. So other than the exception of predictive prophecy, God's sovereign will is not known until after it happens. But God's moral will is known by what he tells us, by what he has made known, by what he has revealed. That's why I say then the difference between the two really comes down to revelation. And where has God revealed what he wants, what God defines as moral and and what is right and what his desires are? Well, of course, that's in the pages of the Bible, in the pages of Scripture. So I need to be seeking in my decisions to make decisions that are consistent with the moral will of God. I've said that one way to distinguish those is to stop calling it the will of God and call it God's plan when you're referring to God's sovereign will and God's desire when we're referring to his moral will, what God wants, God's disposition, what pleases him. Now, in the in the inscrutable mind of God, there are things that God in his sovereign plan 
has happened that are not pleasing to him. When sin occurs, God is not pleased with that, to state the obvious. And yet, in God's plan, he uses sin to accomplish his work. And I mentioned last week that one way to think of that is the way that Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian of a few hundred years ago, said that God has the ability to look at every event through two lenses. We can only look at each event through one lens. God has the ability to look at the event by itself, standing apart from everything else, and we have that ability also. When we see an event or we experience an event in our lives, we're seeing it through what Edwards called the narrow lens. We're just seeing that. And we don't know how that connects to everything else. But God has this other ability that we don't, and that is to see through the widest possible lens and see how that event, though bad or evil in itself, fits in with his overall plan. And God is, Romans eight twenty eight working all of those things, good, bad, and ugly, together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So God has the narrow lens, and as he looks through the narrow lens, he will pronounce the thing for what it is. It's good or evil, it's bad, it's right or wrong. But nevertheless, in his sovereignty, he's allowed that in order to achieve something that we can't see. That he sees through the widest possible, widest possible lens. Now that all dovetails in how we view bad things that happen to us and how we view bad things that we do. And last week in our shortened time together, we only had 30 minutes together last week instead of 45 because of our evacuation drill that we did at the end. But in that shortened, uh, abbreviated period, I began to talk about how I have heard people over the years invoke God's sovereign will to excuse their own culpability. That they're doing something that God calls wrong, but because God is sovereign and he's working all things together for good, then it's not, it's not so bad after all. And I've counseled with people who will use that kind of language. And we, and I say we including myself, we since our parents Adam and Eve, we are experts at using language that deflects blame from us. And so I'll hear this kind of deflective language, deflecting language that, that people will use. Well, you know, God has, a, God has a plan in it. God's working it. God's working it all out while they dismiss the sin that they've been committing and in some cases continue to commit. So I wanted to give some, uh, some thoughts about how we should consider God's sovereign will as it relates to our own sin and misery in a fallen world. James chapter 1 and verse 13 says that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Now, what's interesting about that, to me at least, is that... The word that's translated tempted in verse 13 of James chapter 1 is the same word in verse 2 of James chapter 1 that's translated trials. You remember in James chapter 1 and verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. So why in the one is it 
translated trials, and then down in verse 13 is it translated tempted, because James is setting out at the very beginning to say a sovereign God is behind all of the circumstances that we experience. And that includes trials, things that are hard for us. But God always has a good aim in that trial. And so instead of calling it a temptation, James calls it a trial because God's intention is not that it lead to sin, but rather that it lead to maturity. That's what James 1, verses 2 through 5 teaches. And we're told in verse 5 of James 1, if anyone lacks wisdom in the midst of this circumstance that God has allowed, but allowed for good reasons, even if it's a difficult circumstance, the ultimate good reason is that we be complete, lacking nothing that we be mature in in Christ. And if anyone in the midst of all of that lacks the wisdom to see it for what it is and apply the truth of God's promises to that, let him ask of God. And God will answer that by giving him this wisdom that he needs. So that's a promise of God to answer the prayer of the person who says, Lord, help me in this situation. Help me in this trial to see your hand at work for my good. Help me to see that you are seeking to produce maturity in me. That's what you promise. Rather than chafing under your sovereign hand, let me see your good hand ultimately here in this. That's what James starts out saying. But he also, James knows, that people can experience the very same circumstance. And rather than experiencing it as something God is using for their ultimate good, experience it in a way that it leads them to to sin. And so he warns, when you're in this circumstance, when you are tempted, when you are going through this trial, do not say God is God's intention is to lead me toward evil. God doesn't roll that way, says James. And God's intention, I've already given you at the beginning of the chapter. Rather, when that happens, it's because you're responding to the circumstance based upon your own evil desire, and then you're enticed and dragged away. So here's what that means. The same circumstance can be to one person an opportunity for maturity and to another person a temptation to sin. The same circumstance can be for one one person an opportunity that leads toward maturity and for another person, same circumstance, It becomes a temptation to sin. God's intention is always the maturity. And what gets in the way is our response to that. The issue is how are you going to respond? Now, with that, here are some principles then in order to help us, on the one hand, recognize the sovereign plan of God and that his will is carried out in our circumstances. And in the misery of our circumstances sometimes, living in a fallen world, and yet at the same time to avoid excusing our own culpability. The first one is this. I said last week, invoke the comfort of God's plan, the comfort of God's plan for acts of God and other circumstances that are beyond your control. We've all had things happen to us that are beyond our control. The Bible bids us then to think about the promises of God and comfort ourselves with the promises of God in the midst of those things that are beyond our control. So if you're, you know, a tornado comes down your street and, you know, your house is wrecked. Um, We had a family in our church whose house was hit by lightning last summer. 
you know, and, it took, and they were out of their house for months. Well, you know, that's that's an, what the insurance companies call an act of God. That's a circumstance beyond your control. You know, heaven forbid one of us this afternoon has uh, some ailment, uh, something big, a heart attack or something like that. And we're stricken with that. That's that's outside of our control. That's life in a fallen world. Bad things happen. Those are things that we are genuinely victimized by. But you're not a victim when you of your own will or I of my own will violate God's revealed will. Then you're not a victim. Then you are, then you are dealing with the consequences of your own sin. So in the one case, you invoke the comfort of God's sovereign plan. But in the case of our sin, we should invoke the mercy of God's redemption for sin. This would include mercy to endure the consequences of sin, as well as overcome the sin itself. Now, in this room, there would be all kinds of examples of that, undoubtedly. Examples that I know nothing of, that you and God know of. But when I say the, to in, the, the, the mercy of God to be able to endure the consequences, you can think of all sorts of examples. I have to be careful on the examples because then somebody thinks I know their deal. And I'm not talking about anybody's deal here, okay? You know, but just to use uh, an, an extreme example, but who knows? It could have could have happened. But uh, you know, someone gets drunk, and they drive a car, and they kill someone. Well, how do you how do you deal with the cons- the consequences of that? I mean, that would be that would be on your conscience for a long time, wouldn't it? And it may well be that you've repented of that and you've confessed that. But you still now got to deal with the consequences of it. That you're thinking about a family who lost a loved one and some act that you committed that is a violation of God's, God's moral will. So drunkenness resulting in the loss of life or, uh, or behavior of whatever type that you've engaged in that caused the loss of your job. You know, your your temptation is going to be to say, you know, the boss was an idiot. It was his fault. You know, that wasn't the right job for me. All of that. But but let's suppose you got fired. You got let go because you're a lousy employee. And you may recognize that now and have repented of that. But that had consequences, didn't it? You know, I may I wasn't able to find something else for a while if I was able to find something else at all. For the time that I didn't have the job, I didn't have... I didn't have income, so it resulted in financial instability. So what do I do with that? Invoke God's mercy on that. God is a merciful God, thanks be to God. And when we sin, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But let me say, dear friends, don't cover it. And that's our temptation, is to cover it. It's our temptation since Adam and Eve. As they made their feeble, feeble attempt to cover it, they made their fig leaves, we've got our fig leaves, with which we try to cover it. But the beauty, one of the beauties of the gospel is, Jesus has covered it, so you don't have to cover it. Jesus has covered your sin by his blood, so you can own it. Because the gospel, the good news is, I'm not going to heaven because of my performance. If you're going to heaven because of your performance, you're not going to heaven. 
and neither am I. So you're not going to heaven because of your performance. That means I can admit my lack of ability to perform. My lack of the times when I've clearly sinned and fallen short of God's standard. So invoke God's mercy and then confess regularly. Confess regularly. The word confess in your New Testament, one word used for confess, means literally to say the same thing. Say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. So no weasel words when we talk about our sin. Just straight up, this is what I did. Oh, Lord, I ask you to forgive me. And it's not because of this other person you put in my life. And it's not because of the circumstance. It's because of me and what I did. And if you want an example of straight up confession, you will find no better example than in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David is confessing his sin. And remember, David had great sin. David committed adultery, and David sought to cover that by having a man killed, the husband of the woman with whom he committed adultery. But in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Let me just stop there. Do you guys notice how many times the personal, this personal pronoun is used? This is mine. It's me. My transgression, my iniquity, my sin. It's ever before me. And then in verse 4, he says this kind of incredible thing. After saying all of that, and the background of that is all, I committed adultery with this woman and I sought to have it covered up and so I had her husband killed. In the midst of all of that, in verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned. (laughs) Well, what about Bathsheba? What about Mr. Bathsheba? (laughs) Uriah. Okay. What about say the whole nation that you're supposed to lead. The truth of the matter is David has sinned against a ton of people. But here he is saying, ultimately and most importantly, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you, God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. First three verses of that psalm, it's all me and my sin and what I've done. And in that fourth verse, it's all about you that I've sinned against and your judgments and you being proved right when you speak and judge. Friends, the only way we will see our sin for what it really is, is as we continually see God for who he truly is. The only way we will see our sin for what it really is, is as we continually train ourselves to see God as he truly is. The less God-centered you are in your life, the less seriously you'll take sin. 
Think about that. Who is sin ultimately against? And the less God-centered we are, the less God-focused we are, then the more we will tend to minimize sin. We should understand, and I'm, I'm going to preach in here for just a second, but we should understand that everything that God prohibits and warns against in His Word, He does because it's ultimately a violation of His character. When Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it's saying when we sin, we fall short of the character of God. We're failing to be like God in our thoughts, our words, our actions. So everything that God prohibits in His Word and God warns about in His Word is a serious offense that needs to be taken seriously by those who take God and His character seriously. And it's only when we take God lightly that we can then take sin lightly. It's only then... That we say stuff like weasel words. You know, you're confessing. And you say, you know, I did this, but everybody does. Do me a favor. Don't say that to me, okay? Like, just save the confession if you're not really going to confess. Because that's not saying the same thing. That's not owning it. When you say, like everybody else, I fill in the blank. And then I have to be the bad guy and go, we're not talking about everybody else. We're talking about you. So what did you do? And then Pastor Brown is a really mean guy. I'm glad you're laughing. But I'm telling you, the conflicts that I get into in ministry are not all, but almost all, related to me having to confront people with sin. And I'm going to say unfortunately for me, but I don't consider it unfortunate. Uh, I... I signed up for this. And so I will do it, and I will do it because God calls me to do it. But I will say I don't do it because I enjoy it. I don't enjoy it. I've had people over the years tell me that. You know, you like confronting people. I actually had somebody tell me that. Don't you have to be insane To enjoy confronting people. And you know why I think people say that? Is because most of us only do the things we like to do. So therefore, if you do it, you must like doing it. If you didn't like doing it, you wouldn't do it. No. Sometimes I do stuff I don't like to do because it's the right thing to do. And the right thing to do is to confront people as lovingly as you can, but it's directly as you must. With sin. No weasel words. So if you do that, I will say to you, we're not talking about everybody else. We're talking about you. Own it. That's then what we should do with regard to our 
our sin and yet circumstances that are sometimes without our control. Invoke God's comfort for things that we are victimized by. Invoke God's mercy for our sin. And then thirdly, confess regularly. Say the same thing God says. Now, all of that then, that was an excursus on the will of God and how the will of God can be invoked to excuse our sin. Now, in our remaining time today and next week, I want us to finish looking at decision-making and the will of God. And I've said that there are erroneous ways to pursue the will of God. One is what I call feeling-based decision-making. Another one is outcome-based decision-making. And a third erroneous way is opportunity-based decision-making. But the right way to do it is what I want to focus on now and next week. And that is purpose-based decision-making. Purpose-based decision-making. Now, in order for me to make decisions that are purpose-based, it means I've got to know my purpose. What is my purpose? What is your purpose? The necessity of knowing where you're going is underscored in this famous exchange I'm going to read from you, read for you uh, in Alice in Wonderland between Alice and the cat. And Alice encounters the cat and says, Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And the cat says, That depends a good deal on where you want to get to. And Alice says, I don't much care where. And the cat says, Then it doesn't matter which way you go. And then Alice says, Well, so long as I get somewhere. And the cat says, Oh, you're sure to do that if you just walk long enough. That's very true, isn't it? Can you tell me which way I ought to go? (laughs) Well, then where are you trying to get? And she says, I don't really care. Now, when it's said that starkly, we, we chuckle. But I'm amazed at how many people don't really give any conscious thought to what their purpose is. You've heard me use the illustration of teenagers in a mall who are not there to buy anything. They're there to hang out in the mall. And they just sort of hang out in the mall and they just sort of wander around. And they wander around in packs, packs of teenagers. Okay, But those packs of teenagers become packs of adults that still don't have any real intentional purpose And then fit the decisions they make and the stuff they choose to do into pursuing that purpose. Rather, they sort of aimlessly go along with what's been laid out to them. So rather than them happening to life, life just happens to them. Rather than us pursuing life in an intentional way, pursuing the purpose that God has given us, life just sort of happens to us. Circumstances dictate what I do next. And that's what I find many, many people do. For many people, life is one long walk toward nowhere in particular. And for the few who do have a definite destination in mind, it's often not the goal that's provided by God in Scripture. So I ask you then, where are you going? What are you trying to achieve? What is your purpose? 
Proper decision making begins with a clear understanding of our mission. And then and only then can we make decisions that are consistent with God's revealed will for us. So I'd like to take some time to remind you what should be a reminder to you of what your mission and my mission is if we're a follower of Jesus. God has clearly revealed in the Bible what he wants us to accomplish. The work that God has for us in his world is not a mystery. In fact, many of us know Jesus' last words on earth before he ascended back to the Father. We know those as the Great Commission. That's what we call them, right? And those words were given after Jesus has accomplished what he came to do. He has gathered his first followers. He's died on the cross. He's raised from the dead. He's now ready to ascend back to the Father. And he gives the Great Commission. And yet, very often, we adopt a truncated view of the Great Commission. Now, remember what that is. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And then he assures them that I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 19, and and 20. Now, Matthew 28 is one of three statements of the Great Commission. That's the most famous one. If I asked you to tell me where the Great Commission is, you would probably say, if anything, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. But there's another statement of it in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. And in Luke 24, in the chronology of the ministry of Jesus, you're in exactly the same spot that you're in in Matthew 28. Remember, both Matthew and Luke are part of the four Gospels, and they tell us about the life and ministry of Jesus, including his death and resurrection. And in Matthew 28, that's the last chapter of Matthew. In Luke, the last chapter is chapter 24. And in both of those, chronologically, you're at exactly the same place. Jesus has finished his earthly ministry. He's ready to ascend back to the Father. But instead of, as is recorded in Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus says this in Luke 24. He says, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So he says, stay in the city. Until you receive power from on high. Stay in what city? Jerusalem. I'm leaving. You stay in Jerusalem until you receive power to begin the mission that I'm giving to you. And repentance and forgiveness of sins is going to be, the preaching of that is going to be part of this this mission. So Matthew says it is making disciples and that making of disciples involves baptizing And it involves teaching. And in Luke 24, Jesus says it involves the, the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then there's a third place where you find the Great Commission mentioned. And this time it's in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. In Acts chapter 1, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, 
is picking up where he left off in Luke 24. And Luke says in chapter 1 and verse 8, he records Jesus as saying, You are going to be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, and then expanding to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So it's starting in Jerusalem, it's going to expand outward to the ends of the earth. And then in 28 chapters in the book of Acts, you find that one verse being laid out. Starting in Jerusalem, the first several chapters of the book of Acts all take place in Jerusalem. And then you find, beginning in chapter 8, the spread to Judea and Samaria. And then by the time you get to the end, in the 28th chapter of Acts, you find Paul all the way in the capital of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome itself. So you see this expansion taking place. Three places where the Great Commission is given. And it's in the book of Acts that you see the acts of the apostles carrying out the mission that Jesus gave them and us to do. Now, how did they do that? They waited in the city. And in Acts chapter 2, you have them waiting in the city. That's what they're doing, waiting. So when last we left you, you were told to wait. And now we're picking up the story. And what are you doing? You're waiting. And Acts chapter 2 starts and tells us that they were all together in one place. And then they heard the sound as of a rushing mighty wind. And the Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. And they begin this phenomenon, this weird thing of they're speaking in languages that they had not learned. And the chapter explains to us that there were people who said, we hear these men speaking in our own language. Now let me just stop. These men are speaking in a language, our language, language we speak and we understand. So, the first time speaking in tongues is ever mentioned in the Bible, the first time it's ever done, it is people speaking languages that other people understand. Which is not what speaking in tongues was in my Pentecostal days. It was always a language nobody understood. Really, even the person speaking it. So it was ecstatic speech to anyone hearing it and to the person speaking it. It was gibberish, really. But it was not known to anyone, anyone there. And Paul takes all of that to task in 1 Corinthians 14. Where he says, you know, if you don't speak in a language people understand, what good is it? That's my paraphrase. So in Acts chapter 2, it's a language that, that people understand. That chapter tells us that there were Jews there from every nation under heaven. And here's why that's important. Because remember Jesus said, this, this is going to go to all nations. And there are Jews there gathered for the Feast of Pentecost from every nation under heaven. And now this is beginning. The mission is beginning. Now, here's why that's important for you and me. One, Jesus gave, that's his final marching orders. This is how it was historically carried out in the book of Acts. The Spirit baptizes them with the power to begin this, this ministry. 
And what starts in Acts chapter 2 is not only the beginning of the Great Commission, but the beginning of the church. So now I'm starting to hone in. We can start to hone in on what your purpose is and what my purpose is. But you've got to stay with me for a minute. The church began in Acts chapter 2 at the same time that the mission began. Now, how do I know that? I'll tell you how I know it in our remaining five minutes. Remember that Acts chapter 2 tells us that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. It's the baptism of the spirit that places you into the body of Christ. When you came to Christ, you were baptized by the Spirit and brought into His called out assembly. That's what the church, the body of Christ is. Universal body of believers. Everybody called out of the world into Christ. The church is formed by the baptism of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The first time that this baptism of the Spirit occurred was in Acts chapter 2. And how do I know that was the first time? Well, one, I've read the book, but here's another way. In Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, Acts 11, 15 and 16. Peter is speaking in Acts 11, and he is explaining what had happened at the house of a guy named Cornelius. Now, some of you will remember this, Acts chapter 10. Peter is told to go to the house of a God-fearing Jew named Cornelius, a God-fearer, a God-fearing Gentile, who, a, a God-fearer who practices Jewish customs. And he's told to go there. He doesn't know who Cornelius is, but God directs him to go there. He gives him the gospel. Cornelius uh, and his household receive Christ. And we're told that they manifest the fact that they have been baptized in the Spirit by speaking in tongues. And Peter says in verses 15 and 16 of Acts chapter 11 that this is what happened to us. And then he uses this phrase, at the beginning. So the beginning of this baptism of the Spirit, which brings one into the church, the body of Christ, happened for the first time, according to Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The church and the Great Commission both started in Acts chapter 2. Now, here's the other thing. As you go through the rest of the book of Acts, here's what you find. That the, the church and the mission both move forward together. You don't have the mission without the church. And there should never be a church that does not have the mission at the heart of what it's doing. They both go hand in hand. Beginning in Acts chapter 2 and then all the way to chapter 28, you have the expansion of the mission through the agency of the church. You're given seven reports of progress in the book of Acts, starting in chapter 2 all the way to chapter 28. I will give you those passages and then we are done. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 47... 
you have the first of these progress reports of the expansion of the mission. It's Acts 2.47. And then Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. Acts 6 and verse 7. And then chapter 9 and verse 31. Acts 247, 67, 931, 12, 24, And verses 30 and 31 are the end verses of the entire book of Acts. And by the time you get there, you've gone from Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 to the expansion of the mission through the agency of the church from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the capital of the Roman Empire. There's an organization, a church planting organization called Acts 29. Do you know why it's called Acts 29? That's a really cool name for a church planting organization. Because there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And they're saying, now we are the 29th chapter. We continue carrying this out until Jesus returns. So the mission starts and the church start at the same time. And then they go forward together. Now, next week, we'll see, all right, that being the case, Jesus gave this mission, and the mission goes forward through the church. Then what's my purpose? What's my mission? You're going to see, we're going to see from Scripture that our mission is to be an integral part, make all of our decisions and arrange our lives around seeing the mission of God go forward through his church. And I'll show you that from Scripture next week, all right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that is our map for life. Lord, we ask you to help us to use it as designed. Lord, uh, too often we atomize your word. We know bits and pieces of it. But we have never put together the story and the instruction as it applies to us today in 2015. Lord, you have not left us to grope in the darkness. You have told us what your purpose for us is and the vehicle through which that is to take place. And so, Lord, help us to see this clearly. Help us next week to see it clearly. And then grant us a willingness, not just a willingness, but a desire and eagerness to conform our lives and our schedules and use our gifts and the abilities that have all come from you in order to pursue with all that we are and all that we have the purpose for which you have left us here. Lord, help us to do that because we remember that it is a great privilege to be ambassadors for Christ. That it is the highest privilege to be known by your name, to be your children, and to be carrying out your work. Go with us this week, we ask you, as we serve as your ambassadors. Help us to do so in a way that honors and pleases you. Grant us safety, we ask, and bring us back Next Lord's Day, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.